Welcome to the Energy Update presented by the Institute for Energy Research for the week of July 13th, 2020. I'm Alex Stevens, and I'm joined as always by IER's Deputy Director of Public Policy, Jordan McGillis. Jordan, what do we have going on this week at IER that you want to highlight for the listeners? Thanks, Alex. We've got a couple of different thrusts this week that are worthy of discussion. One is a piece on Joe Biden's recent announcements, uh, which center on a campaign he's dubbing Build Back Better. The particular title of the piece we released on July 13th is Biden's Made in America Does Not Jive with His Energy Policies. Uh, The other thing I want to discuss is the recent decisions made by courts, but also by companies on pipelines. And we've got several pieces online this week that discuss the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Atlanta Coast Pipeline, and the Keystone XL Pipeline. Yeah, why don't we start with the Biden proposal then? Sure. So Joe Biden's approach right now is to massively subsidize and incentivize what he deems clean energy here in the U.S. and to institute a mandate that the United States has entirely, in his terminology, non-carbon dioxide emitting electricity uh, by, I believe, year 2035. Now, this, these mandates and these incentives are being put in place in the context of Biden really emphasizing that he wants to build from within the U.S. Um, he's talking a lot about made in America and revitalizing our industry, especially as we come out of the coronavirus economic crisis. But there's a severe tension here because as our environmental policies currently stand, um, and in fact would be strengthened by Biden, it will be very difficult for us to develop an indigenous uh, wind and solar industry. As policies currently are, we would rely almost entirely on imported components, imported equipment to produce electricity from solar energy and from wind energy. And that's because most of the global trade in critical minerals and in solar panels in particular is based in China and Chinese state-owned or state-adjacent companies. I believe about half of the global critical mineral industry is centered in China. So what Biden's plan would actually do is make us less energy uh, self-sufficient and more dependent on foreign imports, completely in contrast with his, his, the narrative he wants to construct about building back better from America. Yeah, I think that's something you and uh, most of the staff here at IER has stressed is for people who are concerned about building and purchasing American products, the focus should be on across the board deregulation in the U.S. here to make our business environment more competitive with countries like China. And it's pretty clear that, as you said, the blog that you mentioned here acknowledges is that Biden's plan kind of goes in the exact opposite direction of that. And there are some some serious geopolitical risks that would come from from this electricity mandate if it in, indeed does make the U.S. more reliant on imports from China. We have to take into account that across a, a number of different arenas, not just energy policy, but health policy, trade policy, human rights policy, we are really at odds with that regime. And any business that is based in China is beholden to the regime and can be shut down uh, by that regime if it so chooses. So the fears that we uh, we have somewhat dismissed at IER about dependency on foreign oil, um, we've dismissed them because we know that we, we have enough oil 
in the U.S. as long as we're free to, to produce it and trade it. Uh, we know we shouldn't be too concerned about dependence on foreign oil, but we'd be creating that same dynamic if we shifted our economy to wind and solar, but with a with a different dependency in place, one that would, would put us into a precarious position as we analyze the the hostile and potential, you know, new Cold War people are talking about emerging with China. Yeah, shifting our focus to the uh, the two articles on pipelines now. Uh, you care to share with us what each of those articles is covering when it comes to the Atlantic pipeline and then uh, the developments with the Dakota Access Dakota pipeline. Access pipeline. Sure. Let's start with the Atlantic Coast pipeline first. So that is a project that um, has now essentially been been ended. Uh, it was going to run from the Marcellus Shale down through the Appalachian region, Virginia, North Carolina, providing natural gas to those states. And it's faced a number of, of legal challenges. The most recent high-profile challenge was on the grounds that there wasn't the legal authority for a pipeline to go under the Appalachian Trail, uh, despite the fact that it would have been completely non-disruptive to, to any uses of the Appalachian Trail. The Supreme Court ruled in, in favor of um, essentially the, the pipeline operators in that case. And so it seemed like we were on the right track and we were moving toward that becoming a productive project. But uh, after further evaluation, Dominion Energy decided that they would, in fact, end the, the pipeline process because it had just become too costly. And they, they realized that in the long run, with all the challenges they were facing legally, it, it probably would not be to their benefit to finish it. So once again, we have a challenge because of the environmentalist exploitation of our legal system to the Marcellus Shale play being the asset it should be for the, for the states that surround it in this country. We've seen it in the past with New England. Um, the state of New York has blocked pipelines from traversing it. So New England is reliant on uh, importing liquefied natural gas from Russia at times in the cold winter. And now the, the more southern states, the mid-Atlantic states, Virginia and North Carolina aren't going to benefit because environmental legal policy has driven up the cost of, of building these projects to such an extent. And then the second piece focused on the Dakota Access Pipeline. And what happened there is that a district court judge has now ordered the pipeline to stop operating and to empty within 30 days. And to remind listeners, Dakota Access was the site of massive and highly publicized protests about four years ago, 2016, 2017 timeframe. Um, but it did go into operation in 2017 as been, and has been transporting about half a million barrels of oil a day from the Bakken region um, through the upper Midwest to Illinois. Uh, and that's now very quickly been stopped. Yeah, I think two things to highlight here. First, it, it's clear that the keep of the ground movement and environmentalists have turn their attention to pipelines because of all the federal and state permits that are involved there. Um, it seems to be easier for them to get involved with litigation when it comes to the pipeline infrastructure as opposed to going after new drilling developments. And something else that we've stressed at IER, though, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about this, is that blocking these pipelines doesn't necessarily mean, though, that our fossil fuel resources aren't being developed in this country. It just means 
in a lot of cases that they're being transported in a different way, oftentimes at higher costs to consumers and in ways that are potentially uh, a little bit more risky environmentally. Certainly. The, the higher cost to consumers is tragic in its own right, but what, what environmental, um, the environmentally concerned segment of our society should take into account is that stopping a pipeline, as you, as you pointed out, does not mean that oil and natural gas are not in demand and won't be moved to the market in some other way. Because they are reliable and affordable fuels, even with these cost increases that will come with shutting down pipelines, people want natural gas and they want oil, and it's going to be moved by rail or by truck, or in the case of uh, natural gas, increasingly we're seeing um, liquefied natural gas being transported across the oceans by ship. And I, I briefly mentioned New England earlier, um, but in, in recent winters, uh, because of the shortage of natural gas that is a product of the pipeline slowdowns and pipeline shutdowns, um, we've seen shipments of Siberian-produced gas uh, that is connected with sanctioned companies, I should add, sanctioned because of their um, involvement with the Russian state. This goes back to the, uh, the invasion of the Crimea in 2014. We're seeing sanctioned companies involved in the production of natural gas that is then being imported to Boston and used in New England, despite the fact that uh, Boston and, and Massachusetts and the, the other New England states are just a little bit north and east of one of the greatest natural gas producing regions in the world, the Marcella, Marcella Shale. It's truly disturbing that, that something so uh, convoluted would arise due to these pipeline shutdowns, but that's what we see. And um, obviously transporting gas by pipe from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts is simpler, safer, cheaper, more environmentally sound than producing it uh, in the far north of Russia, cooling it to, a, to an extreme degree, shipping across the ocean, heating it back up and using it as, as gas there. Um, and then the, the road and rail alternative is widely understood to have a marginally higher risk than transportation by pipeline. So um, it's still very rare rail and road uh, movement of, of oil is generally safe, but on the margin, we are going to see, you know, potentially more likelihood of there being um, some mishaps. Yeah, these issues with the pipelines are interesting. Um, later today, I'm going to sit down with IAR's director of public policy, Kenny Stein, to talk about these issues a little bit more. Those articles, along with that podcast for our listeners, can all be found on our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org. Thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Alex Stevens.